And, and, you know, you look at the history, it took about five to 10 years after the end of prohibition for bootlegging to really stop. So there's going to be a, uh, there's going to be a lag, right? From the time it goes legal federally, there's still going to be a number of years where these black market profiteers are going to, you know, strike while the iron's hot because they know it's a fading paradigm and consumers are going to kind of shirk, you know, if, if you've been buying weed from the same person for 10 years and you trust them and you know what it is, if you all of a sudden leave them to go to like, a cure leaf or an acres or a, you know, like a com- a corporate cannabis entity, mm-hmm. you're kind of leaving your buddy in the dirt here, right? Like this guy, he needs the income. He does. This is part of his living or their living. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be a hard, hard sell for a lot of people. But mm-hmm. what the, 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 with the data again in Colorado, Washington, Oregon, and California now emerging, what the data clearly indicates is that as consumers become more aware of the benefits of engaging the regulated market for a safe tested product with known percentages and but with with the integrity and with the you you know you can the what we do what we're doing on our packaging and there's several packages so you you buy some ganja there's a qr code on it you scan that qr code and you can see when that seed was planted when that plant was harvested who harvested it what did it get fed when did it ever have pesticides applied to it? The testing. So not only the, the what we call the COA, the certificate of analysis to make sure it's a safe, healthy product, but the testing in terms of cannabinoid percentages, in terms of flavonoid, terpenoid, essential oil percentages, all that good stuff. Like you're going to be able to swipe a QR code on your phone and you'll be able to see the whole life cycle of that product. Welcome to the 62nd episode of Tokyo Alumni Podcast. Today, our guest was born in Queens, New York. He attended elementary school there, followed by middle school in Florida, and attended high school at the American School in Japan, where he graduated in 2005. Upon graduating from the University of Florida, he worked at Digital Domain as a studio operations coordinator. He spent spent several years as a medicinal cannabis farmer. He then started up Jigsaw Earth Consulting as a consulting firm in 2015. Today, he joins us as the Chief Executive Officer at Shasta Grown, a vertically integrated cannabis supply chain company located on the slopes of Mount Shasta in the city of Weed, California. Welcome to the podcast, Ray. Oh, thanks for having me, Nick. Good to see you, buddy. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Been over a decade. Um, do you go by Raymond or Ray now? I noticed there's two different... Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, people call me Ray all the time when I speak in front of voter groups or elected officials. If I'm at the podium on a public meeting, I do try to introduce myself as Raymond, but that's also partially because if I say racetrack too fast, people think I'm giving a nickname. Like my nickname is racetrack and it's like, no, 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 it's just Ray Strack. So it's either way you you can call me whatever you want, but. All right. Well, today uh, we'll talk a bit about, um, not a bit about, I think quite primarily it'll probably uh, the conversation will, surround uh you know your profession in regards to being the you know ceo at shasta grown and sort of the you know anything from the legal to you know logistical challenges you face first i want to jump to sort of you know the crux of this podcast is a lot about you know international schools tck's etc you have this unique perspective of spending you know part of your formative years you know your middle school years in florida and then you finish 
the rest of your, you know, uh, secondary education in Tokyo. So I was wondering for you, having experienced both sort of that international school world and the U.S. school, uh, you know, how did that, those two experiences compare for you? Oh, night and day, night and day. I mean, without going into excruciating detail, the um, public schools that I went to were not good. So coming to a school like ASIJ, where teachers really cared about the students, where the you know scholarly pursuits were lauded as opposed to made fun of, was a tremendous change and something that I didn't even know I wanted. And then to be able to have that opportunity was just astounding. And I, I you know, I'm a really lucky guy, and I've experienced a lot of cool things in my life. And you know, obviously, I'm doing something pretty cool with my time nowadays. But at the end of the day, moving, moving to Japan and having those years there and opening my eyes to other cultures was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me. And what brought your family over to Japan? My father worked for the federal government, for the Department of Treasury, and then uh, subsequently Homeland Security after they reorganized. But he, he was the assistant attache um, for uh, the U.S. Customs Treasury Department at the embassy in Tokyo. So you were sort of that truly uh, expat ambassador kid. Yeah. And, and interestingly enough, you know, <clears throat> now we went to school with a fair few folks that were also embassy kids. However, the vast majority of uh, positions at an, at an embassy are, are generally state department. So there's actually, you know, not all embassies have a treasury department office and representation. So um, unlike folks whose parents worked as, say, consular officers in the State Department where they really did move to country after country after country after country, uh, going to Japan was really the only uh, time that we moved overseas. We did, as you pointed out, move from New York City to Florida, but um, the vast majority of, of postings within the Treasury Department are, are domestic within the United States. So to be able to have that opportunity speaks to, first of all, my father's acumen in his, in his career, and um, secondly, to the fact uh, that we have such a broad, diverse, economically in-depth relationship between the United States and Japan. So like, yeah, London has Treasury Department representatives. A lot of the bigger embassies, Seoul does, of course, Rome. But like the, you know, you, we had some friends that, you know, their parents worked at the embassy and in countries that the U.S. doesn't have a lot of bilateral trade with. And those embassies don't have Treasury Department representation. Interesting. And as you mentioned, you know, we had various friends who were embassy kids and, you know, we visited some of those places. I remember going to the Swedish embassy, for example, and um, among the embassy kids, did you guys sort of have like, did you sort of like compare like which, which places were like the best places to visit and which, which embassies sort of were like a the little, last? A little bit. I think the bigger dichotomy was less between different embassies and more between kids who were there because their parents were in embassy versus kids whose parents were in private industry. Uh, because quite frankly, to not to be, you know, to be blunt about it, that's a different socioeconomic sphere, right? I mean, like, you know, and you had a great post in the other day about, um, you know, the increases in, in tuition at ASIJ. The U.S. government paid more for me and my sister to go to ASIJ than I ended up paying to go to a top five public university in the United States. And the fact of the matter is that on a government employee salary, my father could have never afforded that. And so I think that the, the, the difference there really was more between kids whose parents footed the bill themselves versus those that either the company was paying the bill, that was quite common too, right? Or the yeah. government was paying the bill. And, and that has to do with supply and demand and the fact that there's tons of, you know, expats in Tokyo. But um, 
No, I, I definitely like remember, um, you know, Vasil, for instance, being like, yeah, the, the Bulgarian embassy is like an office. Like it's like one office, you know, like, and the United States embassy, as you know, is like this huge compound with like hundreds of employees. And, you know, so there was definitely a, a, a distinction, but um, yeah, I'd, I'd say me in, in retrospect, looking back at it, the, the bigger dichotomy was, was between those kids whose parents were in private industry versus public service. Yeah, the tuition definitely is, is a topic that comes up quite often. Um, I recently, um, I've been using this app called Clubhouse a lot. I'm not sure. Oh, yeah. No, we were talking about this. I, I just got on that too, man. I, I love it. I'm, my girlfriend hits <laughs> at me because I'm on it all the time. Yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting way to sort of converse with people about topics that maybe, you know, are beyond your inner circle friend group. And I've been talking to a lot of parents or prospective parents uh, for international schools. And that's the, that's the, you know, number one topic, uh, you know, as it always has been, right. As uh, someone once said, it, it's the economy stupid. I think it's the tuition stupid, you know, but like, it's, uh, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's more than a lot of people end up paying for college. Like I said, I mean, it's, it's not a cheap endeavor to send your, send your children to a, uh, a top tier international school. Definitely. And it's, it's definitely a, a conversation every family needs to have. And, you know, I think we were very fortunate that we, we got our education at the International Oh, my goodness. I mean, listen, I, I got into, quote unquote, better schools than the University of Florida. University of Florida is a, was a top five, now a top, excuse me, was a top 10, now a top five public university in the United States. But the reason that I went there was because those, quote unquote, better schools that I got into, for the most part, were private. And again, like on a government employee salary, that's a very tough pill to swallow, Whereas uh, the United States uh, gives an allowance for if you are positioned overseas on behalf of the federal government, whatever state you moved from, you retain in-state tuition access. So I was able to go to the University of Florida on in-state tuition, even though I didn't live in Florida because that had been the, pr- the last place I lived. I had no idea about that in-state tuition status. That's actually... The- yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's like a federal government policy. You know, if you get positioned overseas due due to a job, uh, you retain some of the like some of the benefits of from living in that state. Be it the, the property taxation rate, or in the case of Florida, what they call the homestead exemption tax structure, and uh, several other components. But yeah, in-state tuition is one of those. That's and that's so important. And I think people forget how expensive things are getting. So I'm just going to repeat, I think what I've probably mentioned from at least a few other podcasts, it's not like 40, $50,000 anymore uh, for the expensive ones. And, and you know, your NYUs, your USCs. I just checked the, the other day, we're talking about 75 uh, K, uh, you know, times four years. So we're talking about $300,000. So, you know, we're talking about a small house in the birds. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I paid, I paid eight grand a year for a top 10 public university. Yeah. So it's becoming more important than ever. It's that, you know, people, this is more for the people in the States, right. But to really take advantage and leverage that in-state status, because, uh, you know, simply private schools are just perhaps not, you know, the best option in regards Thank to the buck, Right. Yeah. I mean, again, like uh, university of Florida is very well regarded. I mean, you tell people that you graduated with two degrees from UF, they're like, word, gotcha. Like it's a known entity. Everyone knows the academics are solid. You know, it's, it was a great, great school. And, and, you know, 
I was there for, uh, if anybody uh, in the viewership here is a college sports aficionado, I was there for all of the Tebow years. So I got two basketball, two basketball and two football national championships back to back to back to back. It was wild. The speech afterwards where he was like crying. He was like, I'll never let you down again. I was at that game, you know, like, because we had student tickets. Why, why wouldn't you? Definitely. That, that seems like that was a blast. And I mean, there you, you, you in uh, linguistics and anthropology. So mm-hmm. um, why, uh, yeah, why those two majors? Honestly, um, to be, again, I'm, I'm going to be blunt. I'm going to tell you the truth. I, I wanted to go work for the State Department. I had, uh, I had seen what that lifestyle was like. I saw what the caliber of the individuals that worked in the State Department. I interned for the uh, State Department. And um, so those were uh, courses of study that I thought would be very applicable. And, and I had been informed, quite frankly, that would be very applicable, particularly for language school, for your postings overseas to have a background in linguistics and phonetics. But, you know, uh, turns out the State Department doesn't really want you if you get arrested for possession of controlled substance at the age of 20. Oh, that's part of my life story, man. I mean, if that hadn't happened, I yeah. probably wouldn't be where I am today, right? Like that galvanized, you know, the fact that I wanted to live somewhere where my lifestyle was not criminalized, where I could pursue my interests without fear of law enforcement and interactivity. And uh, it's one of the reasons, one of the, I mean, I had friends that were doing the medical cannabis thing who have now gone on to found very successful companies and who are doing quite well for themselves in this new legalized market. But they had been out here for several years and, and doing the deal and learning the trade, learning the craft. And they you know, we're like, dude, you know, just get out here, man. You learn what this is within the next 10 years, it's going to be legalized. We're going to be sitting pretty. We're going to be right where you need to be to like legitimize the industry. And I thought to myself, man, well, you know, I got arrested in Florida for, for what I think should not have been a crime. Why wouldn't I go to a state where that activity would not have gotten me arrested? Right. If I had gone to, if I had gone to university in California and I got, and there would not have been an arrest and perhaps I would have gone to the State Department and taking the Foreign Service exam, which I was like slated to do. But because of that, it was like, they're never gonna take you. And so I pursued a different path. And quite frankly, if I had known everything I know now, I would have pursued a degree in a hard science or a STEM, but because I thought I was gonna go, you know, learn a new language every five years and interact with other cultures and, and do the whole, like I said, the Foreign Service officer thing, that was a big, big reason why I pursued that course of study at university. Interesting. So that was a real pivotal moment for you. Yeah. Yeah. I'd never been inside a jail cell before. What? No. What? And and I mean, once that transpired, is is that, was it from around that point that you decided California or was there a few years in between until you, there were a few years, there were a few years in between because I had, I had, at the, at the time I was doing, um, site operations for large live music festivals. I was on the team that would develop the site map, um, kind of comb through local ordinances for event permit issuances for several thousands and tens of thousands of persons and um, do the site map. Where's the stage going to go? Where's the camping going to go? Okay. That means by law for every thousand campers, you have to have this many bathrooms. You have to have lights. We have to have, you know, uh, medical uh, facilities. We have to have, you know, emergency health, emergency health professionals on staff. I really enjoyed that work. I really did. I, I loved it. It was gratifying. It was fun. The people I worked with were interesting, but I, you know what it is that 
is a profession where you live on the road like 40 weeks a year, 40 plus weeks a year. And I didn't really want that. So I parlayed that experience into the operations position at the visual effects studio, where a lot of the workflow modeling, a lot of the standardization, a lot of the, there, there was a lot of crossover. And so I was able to make that happen. And I, I was very happy there. Um, it was a great job out of, right out of college, you know, decent salary, good benefits, interesting people to work with. But um, that company ended up going under in some corporate malfeasance, uh, you know, not to any of the employees, and, and but I was referring to digital domain, right? Just to correct. Yeah. Digital domain. Uh, it was a company founded by James Cameron in the mid nineties. They worked with Lucasfilm and industrial light and magic on, you know, the star Wars prequels. I mean, that was before I got there, of course. And then um, they did a lot of what they call stereoscopic image modeling, which uh, there was a point in time, if you recall, where they were re-releasing old 2D movies in 3D. Mm. And that technology to make a 2D movie into 3D is called stereoscopic imaging. And Digital Domain owned one of the underlying patents for that technology. So that's mm. a lot of what they did. So like we also did all the special effects for uh, the re-release of Tron with Jeff Bridges and all the Transformer movies. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. It was really cool. It was a great job. But I went in one Friday and um, was handed a box along with 600 other people and said, oh, wow. you got to clear out your desk. This is your last paycheck. Peace. Wow. Yeah, you hear about those stories, but you, you were one of those people with the boxes, huh? Yeah. In fact, as, as the operations coordinator, I had to distribute the boxes. It was awful. Because <laughs> I answered to the COO. So he called me that morning. He goes, Raymond, something happened. I need you to take the company card. I need you to go Home Depot. I need you to buy several hundred you know, cardboard boxes. And I said, oh, no, you're kidding. you got to be kidding me, right? He goes, no, dude, I don't know. I don't really know what happened. The CEO called me this morning. We have to cease operations. It was brutal. It was brutal. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you, you're there for several years and then uh, you move up north, right? You, yeah. uh, and, and was that, were you already in Shasta at that point or were you? No, the- no, no. So Digital Domain had offices in Florida, LA and Vancouver. Um, but no, I, I, I actually, right after that, I moved to a place called Grass Valley, Nevada City area, which is like in the foothills, kind of between Sacramento and Reno and the foothills of the Sierras approaching the 80, approaching Lake Tahoe. Mm. Okay. So I worked there between, I worked between there at some farms there and between there and San Francisco proper at, a, at an indoor, like a warehouse growing facility. And um, I spent the better part of 18 months balancing between those two spots, kind of learning the trade because I didn't know anything about plant botany or cultivation or nutrient regimens or, you know, any of it. You know, I, I knew that I liked smoking weed. That's about it. I mean, it, it sounds like sort of almost like an apprenticeship. That, that I describe it like that quite often. Mm. And during that time, was there any moments where you were like, all right, you know, maybe I should consider another you know, area or I go back, you know, digital domain, or were you, were you like totally sold at that point? Like this is, I was totally sold because I mean, listen, like I said, during my time at digital domain, several of my very good buddies who were in the cannabis industry already, who have, like I said, have gone on to found some, some pretty big companies and who we have a professional relationship with, right? We work with them. My company works with them. My friends who were in the cannabis industry already while I was at digital domain had been like, literally being like, what are you doing, dude? You're like, 
working at a job where there's like limited mobility. We're like leading the, the charge of a cutting edge industry that's going to become legal. And like, this is an opportunity to, to make your mark, right? To like start a business, to potentially have a very lucrative exit if you play your cards right, which is, you know, kind of not inevitable, but there's a high degree of probability that's where it ends up with my company, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, no, I mean, once, once I got in it and learned what the work was and everything, I was back with my people. I was, I loved it. I, no, I, once I, the, the transition from digital domain, that decision was made for me. Much like the decision with the State Department, where like that decision was kind of made for me by just the the situation was in charge of that one, right? Yeah. And um, no, once I once I got once I dug my fingers into it, man, I I was very happy, and I still am. And um, you know, you're mentioning stuff about you know the future of the industry or the future, which is I guess now back then, and just to sort of reiterate sort of the history of what has you know transpired in regards to the cannabis industry in the United States. 96 medical marijuana is legalized in California, right? And yeah, and recreationally, first state uh, was, was Colorado about eight years ago. When this was all transpiring, this was about late 2000s, right? Early, early to uh, late 2000s, to early 2010s. With what's going on right now in the States, and I know we're jumping all the way forward to 2021, but why not, right? Um, sure, I know yeah. here we talked a bit about the um, the SAFE Act. So can you maybe mm-hmm. explain to viewers what, what is a SAFE Act and why is it so important uh, in the cannabis Absolutely. industry? Absolutely. So the currently the legalized adult use cannabis industries in any states of which there are, I believe, currently 17, if I recall correctly, off the top of my head, that have legalized full adult use beyond, you know, medic- if you include medical and limited access states, we're talking about I believe 45 of the 50 or 42 of the 50, those companies pay federal taxes. We pay federal taxes, but cannot access FDIC insured banking access. That is both on the lending side, which creates a number of issues within the industry as far as access to capital for construction financing and for infrastructure development, as well as creates, quite frankly, a public health and safety risk because of the large amounts of cash involved in these transactions. And as you know, and anybody that watches the news in California or Colorado or Oregon or Washington, there's no shortage of stories of dispensaries and delivery drivers, et cetera, being robbed at gunpoint because those criminals know that it's a cash industry. And quite frankly, also the product has a certain black market value. Mm. So the SAFE Act allows state licensed cannabis businesses to interact with banks just like every other business. So we don't have to use cash. So we don't have to go to exploitative capital, you know, venture venture capital, which they call vulture capital, right? Where these people are just trying to get a buck out of you because they yeah. know you don't have access to the banks. And mm-hmm. um, so that's going to change everything. That's going to change everything. And my understanding is the current status of it is that it's Congress, it seems to go past no issue, but it's at the Senate level. Where that is correct. The uh, sort of a roadblock. So, is there now, a chance that it could pass just through executive order, or is it something that would have to go through Senate? No, it, it has to go through because it it because it deals with the banking subcommittees. It it has to be a legislative process. Um, that being said, with the wins in Georgia recently, um, you know, it only lost in the Senate by the two vote differential, and so um, it's going to be reintroduced. Chuck Schumer has already said, and 
uh, Cory Gardner and several of the Republicans who are very much in favor of the bill because it's a, it's a really bipartisan issue. It really is. You know, like I forget what the last poll was, but something like 67 plus percent of Americans want cannabis federally deregulated or descheduled. So it's, it's a very you know broad support issue. And I mean, shit, Colorado, great example. I mean, uh, you know, Oklahoma now has one of the broadest adult use markets in the country. And those are deep red states. Or, well, Colorado is now what they call the purple, but Oklahoma, I mean, come on. Um, yeah, it's quite red. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the, the, from an operator standpoint, what it's going to change is the, the, the safety risk for folks that are carrying large amounts of cash. It's going to impact the taxation rate where right now, unlike most businesses, cannabis businesses cannot utilize certain uh, categories of cogs of cost of goods sold for tax deduction purposes. And arguably for our company, most impactful, it means that for the $65 million worth of construction that we are going to engage in over the next two plus years, we can get a significantly lower interest rate in a traditional construction financing loan from a financial institution, as opposed to having to go to a private capital source. Mm. That, yeah, that makes so much sense that, as you mentioned earlier, just the cash creates all those issues and um, it's kind of basically bullying at the federal level. And hopefully, uh, you know, these things will be amended. Um, well, in the passing of the hemp farm bill really changed the dynamic, right? Because, you know, the, in the law, there's this distinction between cannabis and hemp, which does not exist in science. <laughs> like very blunt, you know, they're the same plant. They're different varietals of the same plant. You know, the big thing right now that they just, that's coming into the mainstream is that you can take CBD and if you put it through the right chemical process, you can turn it into what they call Delta-8 THC. Delta-8 THC is THC, mm. but because it's derived through a chemical process from CBD, it's federally legal because mm. the law is so specific, right? This Controlled Substances Act calls out sense, cannabis sensimilia over 0.03% THC Delta-9 because that is the active component. With a little chemical tweaking, you can turn CBD into Delta-8 THC, which means it has one less, not methoxy ring. Again, I should've got a chem degree. This is what I'm talking about. Cause I, you know, now I've learned all this as a, as a craft, as a trade, but I, I mean, didn't, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know if, if you were wrong about what you were saying though. That means no, it's okay. Well, that's why I'm not, I'm not gonna try and quote the chemical processing involved because that's not really my department. I have a great chemist on staff and I have about a half a dozen qualified applicants who have submitted resumes for that particular department of my company. Mm. But that's, that's like a Steve Jobs thing, right? You got to hire people who know more than you. The movement to, uh, although, you know, recently, and this is big actually, and this is what's going to spur change in a lot of these countries that haven't internalized the, the change in drug laws is that the UN World Health Organization recently voted to uh, lessen the tier of scheduling for cannabis on, on a global scale, right? So, uh, mm -hmm. theoretically within the next two to five or three to five years, whatever it is, um, all UN member countries have to amend their laws to reflect the, the World Health Organization's guidelines on cannabis. That's good. That's a big change. Um, yeah, that's yeah. really recent. That's like within the past like six to eight months. And you're public speaking though, man. You, you are always pretty good. I remember you were on the UN, uh, MUN team. So Thank you. MUN, it's paying off now though, huh? Oh, goodness. <laughs> Honestly, I am. And in fact, it's one of the reasons I was pushed into this role, a lot of people in our my industry are 
used to being deemed a criminal, quite frankly. Hmm. And as a result, they are very hesitant to get their name and face out there. In fact, I can tell you some stories about guys who, and, and ladies, who years, years prior to legalization were advocates for legalization, who went to public meetings, county supervisors, city council, and they gave their name and address. You know what happened three months later? No. Cops came. Oh my God. They got raided. Yeah. Because yeah. They, they had the audacity, they had the audacity to engage in public discourse. Wow. It, that's up. So Shasta Grown and Shasta Growth. Can you tell us a bit about sort of the parent company as well as how did this all come to fruition after you know your apprenticeship and then there was the time and then you started up the consulting firm uh, mm -hmm. and what what started your current uh, endeavor as CEO and co-founder? Well, it was it was my brainchild. It was my baby. I uh, I saw the long game. I knew that I lived in a place that had had 25 years of um, decrease in living wage employment. I knew that I, I know that I live in a economically depressed area, quite frankly. And I knew that cannabis was a potential stepping stone toward economic revitalization. So I had been here at my property, which is a beautiful five acre parcel uh, that has an amazing view uh, that looks at the mountain that I grew at for, you know, better part of 10 years. And um, we didn't know what legalization was going to look like. So as, as you are probably aware, every state has had a slightly different rollout of what legalization looks like. In Colorado, it was one thing. In Washington, it was another. In Oregon, it was another. In, uh, you know, even the, the, the more limited licensed states where there's either medical only or nascent adult use and no one knew what California was going to look like. And so here in my county, we had a situation where there really wasn't a whole lot of political appetite for, uh, quite frankly, for permit issuance. So in California, in order to qualify for a state cannabis license, you have to have a local jurisdiction, either a county or a city, sign off on your project. Mm -hmm. There are various ways to go about that. Some places it's easier, some places it's harder, some places it can't happen at all because the local use component of the state legislature allows counties and cities to either opt in or opt out. And if you opt out, you opt out. You don't, you're, not, uh, you're not obliged by state law to issue cannabis permits. And if you opt in, you can include any number of land use mechanisms to either minimize or encourage cannabis businesses to move there. And there's, there's plenty of examples of both. But, you know, in California, we have, I believe, 52 counties and 346 cities. Numerically, less than one third of those jurisdictional governments are issuing cannabis permits. Hmm. Why would, why would uh, uh, those local jurisdictions choose to, you know, not because they think their constituents don't want them, right? The elected officials think that they're going to they're going to lose their position because their church group that they can count on for a couple hundred votes. I mean, these are local elections that are decided with, you know, you know, think about again rural areas. I live in a town of twenty five hundred people in a county of forty five thousand people. 
city council people get elected with 250 votes and county officials get elected with 1300 to 1500 votes, it only takes a couple hundred people saying, you know, F you for you to lose your position as an elected official and and with it your salary and your benefits and and the the prestige quite frankly right mm-hmm. i mean so there's lots of places where the entrenched power structure be it big ag be it cattle ranchers associations be it you know whatever industry is extant there that doesn't want to see sort of a green rush, right? Which is that phrase you hear over and over again about people coming in and buying properties they think are going to qualify because all of a sudden a property that was worth a hundred grand is now worth $750,000. And it's just like, it's crazy. Mm -hmm. So in our county, uh, to be very blunt, and there's plenty, plenty of news articles about this, we have a a rather robust, uh, illicit, you know, black market cultivation problem, right? That are run by organized crime rings that are associated with other criminal activity. And so there was a fear in our county that creating a broadly accessible permitting would allow for the furtherance of illicit activity under the guise of legal cannabis and thus inhibit law enforcement from pursuing those illicit activities. So for instance, I mean, you know, that's a lot to take in and it's a complicated situation. There's a lot of stakeholders, there's a lot of impacts on local communities. But the fact of the matter is that because of the continuing federal illegality of cannabis, there is a marketplace for black market cannabis in states where there is not adult use access or medicinal access. And we always point to alcohol prohibition in in the 1910s as the the single closest parallel. And you know what? For those years, criminal enterprises made tons of money because people could not get a product that they wanted. And it's as simple as that. Mm. And, And, you know, you look at the history, it took about five to 10 years after the end of prohibition for bootlegging to really stop. So there's going to be a uh, there's going to be a lag, right? From the time it goes legal federally, there's still going to be a number of years where these black market profiteers are going to, you know, strike while the iron's hot because they know it's a fading paradigm and consumers are going to kind of shirk, you know, if if you've been buying weed from the same person for 10 years and you trust them and you know what it is, if you all of a sudden leave them to go to like a cure leaf or an acres or a, you know, like a com- a corporate cannabis entity, mm-hmm. you're kind of leaving your buddy in the dirt here, right? Like this guy, he needs the income. He does. This is part of his living or their living. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be a hard, hard sell for a lot of people. But mm-hmm. what the, 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 with the data again in Colorado, Washington, Oregon, and California now emerging, what the data clearly indicates is that as consumers become more aware of the benefits of engaging the regulated market for a safe tested product with known percentages and but with with the integrity and with the you, you know you can the what we do what we're doing on our packaging and there's several packages so you you buy some ganja there's a qr code on it you scan that qr code and you can see when that seed was planted when that plant was harvested who harvested it what did it get fed when did it ever have pesticides applied to it? The testing. So not only the, the what we call the COA, the certificate of analysis to make sure it's a safe, healthy product, but the testing in terms of 
cannabinoid percentages in terms of flavonoid, terpenoid, essential oil percentages, all that good stuff. Like you're going to be able to swipe a QR code on your phone and you'll be able to see the whole life cycle of that product. And that's, that's how you, you get consumers away from the unregulated market. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So sorry, that was kind of a tangent, but to go back to your original question. So I got very politically involved here where I live. As a result, I had to follow the letter of the law because as I gave you the anecdote earlier, there are lots of examples, unfortunately, for better or worse, of law enforcement coming after people who had the audacity to engage in public discourse and advocate for advocate for legalization. You know, there are people who tell these horror stories of going to their county supervisor's meeting or their city council meeting and talking about how I'm a medical cannabis farmer and I think we should do this and this and this. And like three months later, they're getting raided by the sheriff because he didn't like that you had the cojones to get up at the podium and give your name and address. And, and have you seen sort of an evolution in regards to people being a bit more, I guess you use the word having political appetite in regards to sort of representing their position in regards absolutely. to medicinal use? Yes, absolutely. A hundred percent. It's a, it's kind of like a, you know, you hate to use the phrase because they're apples and oranges, but it's a coming out of the closet moment, right? There's people who are like, you know, they, and I, you hear these stories, these anecdotal kind of stories of people like standing in a room and hearing their friends talk shit and being like, what are you guys talking about? Do you guys not smoke weed? Like what, <laughs> you know, and, and the inverse as well, right? Like, you know, people being like, well, you know, I know you guys all like smoking weed, but like, you know, what if our kids get it? And it's like, all right, but that's why you have regulatory safeguards, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, that's the, the old, that's like an old Nancy Reagan, you know, Re- Reagan era drug war thing where like yeah. drug dealers will sell to your kids. Well, guess what? You go to a liquor store, you have to show an ID. Go to a cannabis store, you have to show an ID. Yeah. If you have a multi-million dollar business on the line that could be taken away from you in an instant, if you're mm-hmm. caught selling to an underage person. Now, for the record, Shastagrown does not engage in retail sales. We are a supply chain company, so I don't have to deal with this on a daily basis. But yeah, I mean, the reality of the situation is, is that if a, if a business owner has assets and and the business on the line they're not going to skirt those regulations to make $25 to some 17 year old kid Mm. i mean that's just that's why that even even alcohol sales to minors are sort of like an aberration although being of that age in japan was a different story yeah i feel like it's a whole nother uh another conversation maybe for another time but um (laughs) the uh you know, I think you bring up a great sort of, you know, the analogy of uh, the 1910s, Al Capone, right? That was about seven years, I think. And uh, I was actually kind of thinking another sort of analogy. It's it's like sex education, right? It, it, when it wasn't, or it still isn't in some places, you know, when it's not robust and transparent, you get a bunch of teenage pregnancies. And very open to, you know, people about, you know, this is how you use a condom. You know, this is what contraceptives look like. All of a sudden, Things right. like you know, teenage pregnancy is down. So I think, yeah, it's definitely a great point you bring up that even if you're for it or against it, for whatever reason, it's yeah. like it, the conversation has to take place. And that wasn't even where we were at at least 20, 30 years ago. No, absolutely. And, and I guess this is, a, this is a great time to bring up the fact that, you know, we talked a little bit about my dad and his position at the embassy. 
Now he's been retired for quite some time now in his retirement. Um, he got to say things that he could never have said as a federal government employee. And I'm very, very proud to say that he is now a national spokesperson for a group called LEAP, which stands for Law Enforcement Action Partnership. It is a criminal justice reform lobbying organization. It was formerly known as Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. And they had a very singular lobbying task. They pointed to places like Amsterdam, Portugal, places where there had been a movement to move controlled substance misuse out of law enforcement and into public health. Mm-hmm. And that's what they advocated. And I'm very proud to say Ray, big Ray. Um, that's what, it's one of the things he does with his time now. And I'm very, very proud of him. Wow. So, you know, instead of you following your dad's footsteps, your dad ended up sort of following some of your footsteps, perhaps. A- apples and trees, right? You know, it's a, it's, a, it's an interesting thing, but yeah, no, I'm very, very proud of him, man. It's, it's, yeah, it's amazing to see. That's really cool, man. And, you know, um, it's an industry that's evolving, right? At a pace we haven't seen. Rapidly. You know, like, yeah. I, I can't, really, I don't really know what to compare it to. Um, no, even, even, even tech bros who have now gotten into cannabis will tell you unequivocally, our industry is moving faster than even tech moved in the late 90s. So I think this, you know, leads well into, you know, the last question I like to ask the guests is, you know, what do they see? Uh, themselves doing two, three years, 10 years from now. But I want to sort of morph that into uh, also your industry in general. What would you tell someone who's quite a a novice like me? um, You know, what will the industry look like two, three years from now? And um, what will the industry look like 10 years from now? I think think it's going to look like wine. I think it's going to look like wine. I think you're going to have a stratification of quality to where you can buy a box of Franzia or you can buy a $300 bottle of wine or a $1,000 bottle of wine or whatever it is. You're going to have um, increasing awareness of appellations, right? Which is a concept very common in wine. And I'm proud to say that I was actually one of the appointed members of the California Department of Food and Agriculture's Appellations Criteria Development Committee uh, in Sacramento. I helped write those regulations. I lobbied for that to be included in the law and, and was given an opportunity to help input, write those regulations. And I think that you're going to see an increase in consumer awareness about the various uptake mechanisms that cannabis offers, as well as the medicinal benefits that the plant offers. I mean, did you know that the fastest growing cannabis use segment is senior citizens? No, not know that. Yeah. And they're using it to get off of pharmaceuticals. They're using it to get off pharmaceuticals. That's interesting. And I imagine also for things like uh, joint pain and whatnot, that's probably uh, more prevalent with senior citizens and CBD oil and whatnot is they have more health ailments. So they seek out more, you know, analgesics or what have you. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's story after story of elderly folks going, man, I stopped taking Oxycontin because I can just eat this edible or eat this Rick Simpson oil or whatever it is. Wow. So That's, that's powerful, man. That's powerful. Yeah, because I mean, isn't uh, oxycotton and you know uh, opiates? It's opiate. You know, yeah, they're the no. next like you know. There, there have been several studies done indicating that opioid use decreases in states with adult use access markets. Mm. Plenty of data. So it seems like it's a, a multiple, you know, multiple layers. It seems to be moving in the right direction.
you know, we didn't know how legalization was going to roll out in California and all these states have different legalization regulations and they vary from state to state. They're not kind of codified. And so what my partner and I did, uh, Matthew Dodson, who's on our website, is my co-founder. He's a longtime friend and business partner. We started a consulting firm. Um, and what we did is we looked at like the underlying root of what doesn't the traditional medical market have that a regulated market is going to mandate. And one of the first answers we came up with was written SOPs and public health and safety framework for consumables manufacturing. Mm. And so when I got politically involved here in my county, and like I said, had to follow the letter of the law, and I had to severely limit the amount of plants that I had, which obviously is a direct correlation to how much money I make. I took a gig up in Southern Oregon uh, in the year that Oregon went adult use legal. Mm. And I opted not to become a part of that company and to remain an independent contractor. And as a result, the documentation that I prepared on their behalf then became the basis for the consulting firm. And so we wrote up what's called a HACCP plan. It's a hazard analysis and critical control point plan. It is a federally standardized, internationally mandated consumables manufacturing safety framework. Every product that you put in or on your body has the, the facility that makes that product has a HACCP plan. And it's very basic. It identifies physiological, biological, and chemical points of potential contamination and sets rules and limits to mitigate the potential for contamination of a consumable product. Mm. I, I, you know, it's a very broad kind of outline. It was developed by NASA in the 60s for use in the space program. Yeah. Uh, and so we did that to hedge our bets because, okay, if we can't get permits, we know that everybody that gets a permit is going to need one of these. Mm. And we can just go sell this to permit holders. Mm. And so that's what we did. Um, we didn't end up having to do it. Like it didn't end up being a long-term business model because we were successful in obtaining permits, but it was a hedge against what if we couldn't get permits. Mm. Also simultaneously, the development of that documentation, because it's in a format that is very accessible to public officials, be they department of health, agriculture department, whatever, this is the same sort of framework that they're used to seeing in every other industry. And mm -hmm. so it became a very fundamental underlying IP component of the company's ability to get permits. Wow. So, so fast forward a little bit. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was wondering, so with your, um, with your partner's background, did you guys use, what was there a specific industry that you guys sort of used as a, you know, a, um, what's the word I'm thinking of, a blue, uh, uh, as a blueprint. Yeah. Right. To, you know, setting up your um, rules. A little bit. Yes. There's definitely uh, parallels to agriculture at large. There's parallels to viticulture, to the wine industry, alcohol, um, liquor, distillation, right? S mm. Same chemical process. You know, the, the product that goes in most what people call vape pens, right? Like the pens they use smoke. That product goes through a chemical process that is literally the exact same chemical process 
as alcohol goes through in the term in uh, liquor, if it's distillate, if it's a distillation, alternately, if you're using a hydrocarbon solvent, it's the exact same chemical process that you would use to extract essential oils from a plant like lavender oil or rosemary oil or what, you know, something you buy at the health food store, right? The chemical process that extracts that constituent molecule from that plant is the exact same process that we use in cannabis to extract cannabinoids and terpenes. So yes, of course, there were blueprints. That being said, HACCP as a theory and as a protocol is at its core sort of open source, right? It's it's very broad. It's meant to be as applicable as humanly possible. So that's why I say all it does is you write down what your process is, you analyze your process, where are the potential points of contamination? Okay, we've identified those. Now, how do we mitigate that potential? Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll tell you what, I, I haven't discussed this explicitly with him, but I would reckon to wager that Shinji's facility with the Japanese white turmeric, when mm-hmm. they extract that, they have a HACCP plant. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And he and I have spoken a little bit because CBD is big in the healthcare space. And so he and I have definitely exchanged notes on a couple of things and, um, you know, very, very excited to see. That's actually one thing I really want to say. I've, I've really enjoyed looking over your guest list and watching some of the ones that I hadn't like checked out because I knew the person. It's mm-hmm. just, it really speaks to the quality of education. Um, you know, back to your like super original point really speaks to the quality of education that there's just so many people in such a wide variety of fields who have achieved the level of success and they can point to their time at an international school uh, and the caliber of education they receive. They can point back to that as being an integral component in their success. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. Definitely. Definitely. That, and I'm happy that you're one of the you know 12 people that have seen some of those other episodes. Um. <laughs> hey, hey, dude, some of them, I was looking, some of them have a couple thousand views. Yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a few um, uh, that have got some hits. Um, but I mean, either way, I always tell people that intention is not really to get you know a bunch of views. We can always we can always do that with other ways, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, to get real, huh? well I, I'll tell you what, man. Our marketing guy, our one of our initial angel investors, and and um, our kind of marketing guru, he's been telling me for ages that I need to like you know they call it create your personal brand, and I was like, that sounds really lame. What what are you talking about? And um, so this is now the the second podcast or interview thingy that I've done. The other one was also with an old friend. And uh, there are no less than five or six more scheduled for the coming months. Oh, wow. <laughs> because the industry is so exciting. I've been asked to speak at a couple of conferences, um, be they virtual or in person, particularly my experience on that California Department of Food and Agriculture board has gotten to a position where like companies are literally like cold calling me being like, yo, we saw that you were one of the contributing authors on yada, yada, yada. Can we pick your brain? How much is it going to cost us to pick your brain? Mm. And I'm like, I don't know, man, this is my brain. (laughs) You know, like uh, do your own research. It's not that hard. I can send you the link. So that actually, that was funny. I was in a clubhouse room the other day where I was given some secret sauce type shit and there were like eight speakers and like 150 listeners. And yeah. the moderator was like, Ray, every cannabis consultant in the room is super pissed at you right now because you just told people <laughs> how to do it for themselves. I thought that was really funny. 
Oh man, that's it, as we were, we talked a bit off air, and we don't have to go into the details, but it's it's definitely an industry that is uh, it's just growing, man, and it's it's exciting, like in regards to the magnitude and in yeah. regards to it's the social impact as well. Very positive, right? Whether it's elderly people having less pain in their joints and getting off of opioids, or you know, younger people having the knowledge, um, no longer the knowledge, and you know the 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 very famous joke. Bill Murray, right? I think it was Bill Murray said the most dangerous thing about pot is getting caught with it. Mm, that's a great point. Yeah, it's the, yeah, it's crazy. Like the fact that my potential career was derailed because of something that I'm now building a company for. Mm. I mean, what a time to be alive, right? Jesus. Yeah, it's definitely crazy how things change, uh, usually for the better uh, as we grow older. And um, on that note, I know I asked you about, you know, what you see in regards to the industry uh, five years now, from 10 years from now. Um, yeah. My last, last question to you is where do you see yourself uh, two, three years down the line and maybe even in the next few decades? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm going to be running this. I'm going to be, be doing this for the, the foreseeable future. I mean, even in the event of an exit, for the most part, um, the acquiring company tends to keep founders and C-level staff on for a couple of years. So even if five or six years from now, we sell a chunk of the company, I would have to stay on for that integration period. So there's going to be a lot of consolidation in the industry because you have these siloed states with some with supply chain, some with retail, like, you know, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, great example. Those states have arguably the, the largest consumer base and they have no supply chain infrastructure. And so with the advent of the SAFE Act, which as we talked about, looks like it's going to be in, reintroduced in March, mm. there is a burgeoning awareness of the fact that there's a, there's, there's a halfway decent chance, and I'm, I'm actually kind of betting on the model that cannabis for interstate commerce, at least initially, is going to most closely model is that of firearms, which mm. I know sounds bizarre, and I'll contextualize. If a United States citizen living in, let's say, Idaho, because they have very lax gun laws, wants to buy a firearm from someone in, say, Alabama, where they also have very lax gun laws, as long as the buyer and seller have their paperwork, that firearm can be sold and transported to that other state, even though it passes through states where that firearm is not technically legal. And so, yeah, so it's a paradigm. It's a model that the ATF, the Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms Bureau, the federal government already uses. It's yeah. somewhat yeah. analogous, although a little more macro to in the United States, we still have dry counties, right? We have counties that have, you can't, you can't say people can't consume alcohol, but you can say people can't buy alcohol. And so people have to go to the next county over to buy booze. So ATF uh, covering those two functionalities has an existing paradigm for limited interstate commerce that it looks like cannabis may fall under in the years to come. And it's the reason why the interstate commerce is sort of, you know, superseded by these other rules is that to purposely sort of, and I don't know if saying going over the federal government's head is the right word, but is that part of what's going on there? Or Well, it's not going over their head, right? I mean, the underlying basis of the Commerce Clause, um, and goodness, I don't want to misquote this because I'm sure there's somebody that's going to watch this that's a lawyer and be like, man, Ray got that way wrong. But 
you know, the FBI was literally created because bootleggers could literally go over a state line and those cops couldn't get you in the other state because they didn't have the authority to go over. Mm -hmm. And so the commerce clause that allows the federal government to investigate and control interstate commerce is because states signed on to it because the senators and the congressmen that are the federal representatives of those states and of those constituents were like, yeah, that seems reasonable. Mm. As a result, there exists a paradigm where the federal government says, okay, person X in Alabama can own this gun and person Y in Idaho can also own this gun. Person X wants to sell to person Y, their state laws allow for it. Who are we to say no? Mm. And that's, that's the, that's the theory. Interesting. So more like Not really a theory, I mean, it, it happens in other industries, but the thinking is that that is the path of least resistance for limited interstate commerce in the cannabis industry. Also was the underlying, um, the underlying legal argument for, you may have seen right when hemp was federally legalized, there were several massive shipments of industrial hemp that were interdicted in States that they then had to like release the product to the owners, drop the charges and quite frankly, pay restitution um, mm. because the federal government was like, you can't stop them from doing this. We said it's okay. So it works yeah. both ways. Interesting. So in certain ways, you know, we're going to see the industry develop like wine in certain ways, like firearms. Uh, but ultimately, you know, it, it's its very own industry cannabis. And um it's, it's been uh, at the end of the day. So to, more, to your original question, you know, two, three to five years from now is going to be a transitionary phase. 10, 15, 20 years from now, this is going to be like going to buy a six pack. It's going to be like going to buy a pack of cigarettes, it's going to be whatever it is. And it's going to it's going to be dominated by the same sorts of modalities that dominate the CPG, the consumer package, good market. It's mm -hmm. it's 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 going to cease to be an outlier and get brought in closer to the bell curve. Interesting. And we talked a bit off air, too, about with the U.N., uh, you know, classifying it uh, in, in regards That's to huge. Uh, yes. being a lower tier, uh, you know, drug um, that is also going to have a global impact. So it'd be very interesting, especially, you know, as us sort of global nomads uh, seeing, you know, how the world uh, changes. But um, yeah. I mean, there's a there are there are situations. I mean, I, you know, you can look it up for yourself, but um, Canada exports right? Because it's federally legal in Canada. So Canada exports to limited access medical markets in places like Germany, uh, mm -hmm. Jamaica exports, uh, Uruguay, which federally legalized. So there are these limited access markets, very analogous to what I described between like Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, and California, where you have consumer base and no supply chain. Well, in Canada, they have consumer base or they have supply chain rather and no consumer base. So in Canada, the federal government allows them to ship to other limited access countries. You know, uh, very there there was a, you know, recently GW Pharma, which was a Canadian, partially Canadian funded public company, if I'm getting the facts correct, but a British company that owns the U.S. rights to Epidolex, which is the first FDA approved CBD medicine for seizures, was recently acquired for seven point two billion dollars. Wow. <laughs> who acquired it um i forget the name of the company it was it was some aggregate including like gw pharmaceuticals is a shareholder in the company that bought them it was what you know it's one of those again consolidate yeah. that's right and that that's sort of my impression too of what is to come is we're going to see just more and more of the big players 
come in and hey i know people have issues with that too in certain ways but overall as a population maybe um you know but that in will terms of that the capital in terms of like stability of manufacturing in terms of like uniformity like because listen if you went to the store and every time you bought cornflakes they were different you'd stop buying cornflakes mm-hmm. right like there needs to be some uniformity i mean it's a very complex plant and i don't want to you know i don't want to mitigate how complex a, a medicine and a plant it is but at the end of the day people are going to want uniformity and one of the ways that you can obtain uniformity on a, a economy of scale is is quite frankly with infrastructure development that that allows for that uniformity again i just you know it was redundant but whatever no i agree i, I don't know what you mean you, you need that capital right or someone who could provide that capital to create that infrastructure Absolutely. I don't, I don't have this much money. I mean, you know, like we've, we've, uh, we've accomplished to date what we've done uh, with just basically friends and family round and, and, and some dollars from uh, angel investors. But um, you know, we've, we've sold off less than 7% of the company mm-hmm. and uh, we're now in a position where because of this change in federal banking laws, we may not have to sell off that more of it because you know, private capital, venture capital tends to want equity for their dollars, whereas mm-hmm. banks and FDIC-backed financial institutions, it's just a debt instrument. You know, they don't actually want to own any of your, you know, if you don't pay the debt back, then they recoup, then they own your shit. Yeah. You know, they're not like coming right out the gate like, yes, I'll give you money in exchange for part of your company, mm-hmm. which is yeah. how it is right now. Yeah, as you were saying, the the vulture uh, capitals. Although I got to be careful what I say, because I'm definitely going to have someone on probably in the near future who oh, works from a VC firm. Yeah, dude. <laughs> they send them my way. Ah, I'm kidding. But yeah, um, yeah, I do want. I do want to go back and just just follow up because I I know it's an elongated tale, and I'm sure you'll you'll edit this to to how you see fit. But you know, so from the time that we started the consulting firm. Hmm. We were introduced to a company in Las Vegas. Now Nevada. Nevada going legal was huge because, and again, Nevada is like one of those states, right? It's like the only state in the union where prostitution is legal, right? Mm -hmm. Which is theoretically federally illegal. But guess what? State law supersedes federal law in that particular case, likewise with cannabis. Uh, We don't like that analogy as an industry, obviously. It's vastly different because of the human impact. I'm not going to stand here and defend it. Although, you know, again, in terms of harm reduction, arguably better. Nevada going legal is huge. And we were contacted by a colleague of ours who had been brought on as someone who had subject matter expertise, who was an SME in cannabis to a very, very corporate client in Colorado Mm -hmm. who it cost them several million dollars to obtain one of, I believe at the time it was like one of 16 permits, right? So very closed, you know, you had, they had a huge dispensary right on the strip. I mean, it was crazy. So they brought me in, they brought me in, they wanted me to help fix their, they had this, they had millions of dollars put into infrastructure and the guy running it, which was not my buddy, which was a third party had no idea what they were doing. They had completely misrepresented themselves to these corporate suits who like took their story at, at, you know, they took them at their word and they hired them 
And six months, eight months later, they're running this million dollar facility into the ground because they had no idea what they were doing. So I got brought in. They wanted to implement SOPs, implement control mechanisms to make sure the facility could function as they expanded their labor force and brought on people to train and all this kind of stuff. That ended up spiraling to a situation where they actually offered me uh, um, basically a COO type position. And I said, no, I turned it down because I was in Vegas for several months. Oh my goodness. That was awful. I'm not a Vegas guy. That was, it was fun for like the first week. And then it was like, it's just, just I hear living there is very different than uh, visiting there. Yeah, that is absolutely true. I did come to find that out. But the fact of the matter is you still see some of the gnarlier sides of it, just even like driving to work, you know, just like, Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like, you know, that, that, and you see it in San Fran, right? Tech millionaires going to work and they walk over people sitting on the street, right? It's a very gnarly thing, you know, economic, economic stratification is, is increasing. I don't think anyone would argue against that. Um, but I didn't like it. And I didn't like the people. I didn't like the suits. They were like really dismissive. They were like, you know, I was just some stoner that they thought could maybe help them out. And I was like, you know what? This isn't even worth it. And the biggest turning point, and I, and I want to say this because it's very important. I came home to weed, to Mount Shasta. And I told my buddy, the, the gentleman I referenced earlier, the city councilman, former mayor, who's like a mentor of mine, that I might be moving to Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. And he was like, you can't do that. We need you. Mm-hmm. And that was such a humbling thing to like, this guy, he's, you know, he's late seventies, you know, mm. elder, right. Wise elder. Yeah. And he said to me, he goes, you know, listen, I understand you need to make a living, but like, please don't abandon our community. Like so many other people of your age, quite frankly, have done, right. This is a guy, his grandkids live here, but his children left or with one exception, his daughter's a a teacher here. Um, But like he witnessed this, right? This was a guy who served in the military, came back home, got a good paying job at a lumber mill. When the lumber mill went under, he went back to school. He became an elder care nurse in his fifties. And now 25 years later, he's like watching his community slowly decay. And he saw in me, I don't know, kind of like a hope, right? I guess, you know, you hate to say that is because, you know, I don't want to be egoistic about it, but, but he literally looked me in the eye. He goes, Ray, you can't leave. If you leave, what about all these plans we have? You know, so for context there, I am on the board of a County economic development committee. I am the chair of our city economic development committee. I am a member of the rotary, um, which is just wild. It's very funny to me. Um, But you know, so I turned that job down. And, and part of the reason I turned that job down was because I realized that my community kind of, kind of needed this, right? Like no one else was stepping up with a project that would employ 300 people at $20 an hour. Yeah. No, I'm there ain't, ain't, ain't another one of those on the back burner, right? We don't have a plan B. Yeah. The lumber industry, the timber industry is not coming back. The mining industry is not coming back the cattle industry, the margins keep getting slimmer. 
and that's too heavy a land asset, land asset intensive industry for the average worker to be able to capitalize on it because you need to own large tracts of land. Mm. And, um, and we had a very blunt conversation and I went to the city council and I went to the city administrator and I said, look, like I, I have this nascent plan. If you guys engage in the state permitting procedure, we can establish employment opportunities that will long-term alleviate the economic stresses our community faces. Mm. And to my relief, it was well-received. Wow. And that's, that's how we got to where we are. That's, that's why, that's why I said we had to bring it back to this because yeah. that's really like, I, I I'm good at what I do. I can grow some good ganja. I know about product formulation. I'm good at policy and lobbying and all this. Stuff. But at the end of the day, it took a community buy-in. It took people going, you know what? Everybody smokes weed. They already grow it illegally. Why wouldn't we engage the legal industry that's going to pay tax revenue and pay living wages and you know why why in the world wouldn't we and listen there was a debate i don't want to say it was like the next day we were good to go in fact from that point in time it took over two years the the uglier part of that story that i didn't say there and you please feel free to slice this in i'll go back in character so you know my mentor he he described to me uh the level of apathy and how apathy had just kind of inserted itself into the community and you just had this lack of drive from people because people were like this is how it is and it'll never change because they didn't know it when it was better Mm. the old timers are old they don't they're not in their 20s they're not in their 30s they're not starting new businesses and so the community has been very stagnant since the lumber mill you know the lumber mill for in one day the lumber mill went from employing almost a thousand people to employing Mm -hmm. 300 people. Like they lost like 700 jobs in one day. Kind of like what I went through at digital domain, except Mm -hmm. it was the only employer in the community. Mm -hmm. Everybody worked at the mill. This town, this city was a company town until 1961. You could only live here if you worked at the mill and the mill owned all the housing, the mill owned all the stores right? The company store, the classic company store, right? It's the sold my soul to the company store where you'd literally go in and you'd buy goods and they'd make a note. You didn't exchange any cash. They'd make a note and that got docked out of your next paycheck. Crazy. And that's like 61. So, you know, people still, people are still alive. Their their parents would have been working there kind of thing too. Right. Or unless you, the elder you knew, he was old enough that he, he was probably an adult. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he was just, he was in high school when the city incorporated. Okay. But I know, I mean, I can tell you right now that, um, and actually this is like a whole other thing. And perhaps we can talk a bit more about this, but um, I was also one of nine named citizens in a lawsuit over the town's municipal water supply. Yeah. Which got me a lot of they fucking think- credit. Uh, are they you sued them? What do you mean? What do you mean? You mean you sued them or they sued you? I don't get. No, no. I was sued. Yeah. Along with nine other individual or eight other individual citizens, nine of us total. Yeah. Who, again, had the audacity to speak up at a public government meeting. Yeah. About a private corporation attempting to usurp control 
over the city municipal water supply. Oh, so the company went after you. Yeah. You guys won? Yeah. Nice, nice. (laughs) It was actually found to be, uh, it's called a slap suit. It's a strategic lawsuit against public participation. There are laws against them. They are very frequently used against people who protest things like resource extraction, fracking, pipelines, water bottling plants in our particular case. Uh, Um, So that's actually, I got to say, that's actually when the, when the memoirs come out, that'll be one of the best chapters. Definitely, man. That's, that's cool though. That's Aaron Brockovich style. Totally. And so that group, (laughs) so that, that group to, to speak to your, the reason I brought it up was because you made a comment about community elders, the group, that group of nine people, I was the youngest person in that group by no shit, 30 years. Wow. The oldest was a 94 year old, three time former mayor. My God. That's the, so the nine, the nine persons included three former mayors. Yeah. Four former city councilmen. There was some over, there's overlap there, right? So that's the same four people, four city councilmen, three of which were also mayor one of the leading guys on the historical society and several times citizen of the year, Jim Taylor Mm. and like a couple of other old time locals who's, who actually bought their houses in 61. So in 61, when the city incorporated, if you lived in a company house, you had the right to buy that house at a certain rate. And it included in the deed that came with the house included the water service. And so one of the underlying premises of why we, we challenged this, this water right transfer was because there were neighborhoods whose original deeds included downstream usage rights to that same spring water. I see. So yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense that what they're so doing. I, literally, I was, I'm the youngest person of the weed nine. You, we yeah. had, there was an article about us in the New York Times. There's a documentary about it. Really? The weed yeah, yeah. Nine. Yeah, weed nine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, it's kind of like a Lebowski joke, right? Like the Seattle Seven. <laughs> um, and yeah, I was the youngest person in that group by thirty years, and the reason I was brought in to that group was because of those nine citizens. I am one of two that has a college degree, mm-hmm. and so they were like, "Ray, we need you to help us write press releases mm-hmm. and write letters to law firms, the ACLU." to the Civil Liberties Defense Union who ended up assisting us, to the First Amendment Project who gave us free legal representation and beat the case back. Wow. That was wild, man. I'll I'll, I'll try to find that New York Times article. and then I'll uh, send it to you. It was written by a gentleman named Thomas Fuller. It was was like three years ago, four years ago, maybe when when the suit was originally instigated. We were then tied up in court for the better part of three years, but it was, we were we were dismissed from the suit and it was declared to be a strategic lawsuit against public participation, which is expressly illegal. Crazy. I, I was just looking for it right now. Um, yeah. If you type in weed, California, water, New York times, fuller, F U L L E R L come up. So from the time that I turned down the gig in Vegas mm-hmm. and I had the, the conversation with my, with my mentor, uh, and he said, you know, we, you can't leave. We need you. Right. Mm-hmm. It took approximately two years of community meetings. So what I did was I went to the city council and I 
requested the creation of a cannabis permitting and regulatory advisory committee that was open to the public that I de facto chaired and would go in every two weeks for 10 months Mm. and gave presentations on the differences between illicit and regulated cannabis and the potential community benefits the industry could offer. Alongside me on that board was the chief of police at the time who has since retired, the city manager, two city council persons, as well as several community leaders from churches, from the, the Sons of Italy, which is huge here because there's a lot of Italian uh, folks, uh, folks of Italian descent that live here. All mm-hmm. sorts of different folks from the community came out of the woodwork because they wanted to find out, you know, what this was going to look like or... For some of them, they came out to be like, not in my town, you're not. Mm. We we walked it through. You know, I was able to illustrate what uh, a regulated marketplace looked like. I was able to illustrate what the realities were. And and at the end of the day, there was a consensus reached that, okay, our community is very comfortable with the, what they call the core corporate client model. And that's a fancy word for a company town, just mm. like the lumber mill used to be. You yeah. have one central employer. They provide living wage, generally manufacturing jobs. And those people then spend money at restaurants, at bars, at the bowling alley, at the movie theater, at shops. And it, it's a very, very common concept in in uh, urban and and not even urban, just in, just in land use and planning in general, right? You know, when you talk about community resiliency and economic development. Um, at the end of that, we engaged with the city to negotiate a bilateral contract, what's called the development agreement. It's a land use mechanism that allows for negotiations between a, a developer, which is basically what we are, right? We're an economic development firm and a land developer and the jurisdictional municipality, the government. And it took about better part of better part of two years, two and a half years to finish that process. And, you know, due to COVID, some other con- components, we did have a pretty substantial delay, but I'm proud to say that um, in November of last year, we walked away with full approvals for the project, um, which incorporates, you know, approximately 600,000 square foot of greenhouse canopy, as well as uh, nursery and genetics development for those greenhouses, uh, processing, manufacturing, so the creation of things like edibles, vape cartridges, et cetera, and distribution. Uh, it's, it's the reason that we call it, a, a, well, we don't call it, the reason the nomenclature is it's a vertically integrated supply chain company in that it is all components of the supply chain short of retail sales to the public. And we have uh, approximately 60 acres of land that we uh, recently uh, started to do some site prep on. In fact, the uh, drone survey just wrapped up so we can get all the drainage calculations. And we're currently in the midst of engineering and environmental review. And we look forward to breaking ground in the coming months. Awesome. Sounds like big things are happening. And, you know, again, Big things, man. Have you, man? And um, yeah, hopefully we'll have you back uh, when we start to hit triple digits in the. Uh, oh, sure, dude. Get the updates because uh, everything's oh, fresh. 
Yeah. And I, I, dude, a year from now, I won't be at, in my house with this terrible lighting. I'll have an office in our, in one of our buildings and I'll be able to like walk you through the greenhouses, show you the plants, all that shit. Sounds good, man. L looking forward to it. And again, uh, thank you for being a guest today on episode uh, 62 Tokyo Please. Alumni Podcast. That was Mr. Thank Raymond. you so much. Go Mustangs. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I'll see you around, man. Goodbye. Yeah, absolutely, buddy. Yeah.